Thank you, Dave. I think this is working. I hope you're hearing me on the internet when this is uploaded. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Kyle, and I have the exceeding honor to study the Old Testament with you today. We don't have to study the Old Testament. We get to study the Old Testament. Uh, when Paul was writing to Timothy, he said, All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for rebuke, for teaching, for correcting, so that the man of God may be complete, lacking in nothing. He wasn't talking about Romans or Matthew or John. He was talking about Deuteronomy. He was talking about Psalms, the Kings, Chronicles. He was talking about the Old Testament. So today we get to open the Old Testament together. I'm glad that we've um, read so much out loud this morning. The Hebrew word to read is actually means to cry out. When uh, the Hebrew scriptures were read, they were read out loud publicly. Um, at no time in history have sacred documents ever, ever been read uh, in your bedroom or on your couch in your head. They've always been read out loud. And so um, I have a professor at school who's really challenged me and much to probably the annoyance of my roommate, I've started reading the scripture out loud in my quiet time. And actually uh, the professor I have at this class, my roommate has him for another class, Daniel Block, and um, he actually had to read the entirety of Deuteronomy out loud in one sitting. It took about four hours. Um, So today we're talking about um, the Old Testament. We're talking about the Psalms, which I think are the most read and perhaps least understood book in the scriptures. And so I'm hoping today to give you some tools to understand it, some um, ways of thinking specifically about lament Psalms, which are so alienated to our experience as Christians in the church. And hopefully um, throughout the next six or eight weeks as we study laments together, you really connect with this literature and it really pushes you toward the Lord in some new ways. So um, we did our talk, our table talk, our talk amongst ourselves. I want to talk a little bit about how to study lament over the next 40 minutes or so. And then we'll uh, have some Q&A hopefully. So um, I do um, want to start though with the Psalms in general. Walt Russell, in his book, uh, Playing with Fire, says the very essence of the Psalms dynamically unites human experience and emotion with a vibrant theology about God. Um, And I'll show you this book now. Walt Russell's book, I used this at a class I did in my undergrad, it's called Playing with Fire, How the Bible Ignites Change in Your Soul. Um, And it covers every genre of scripture. Um, so that you can know how to study it. There's little charts at the end of every chapter that say, hey, this is, here's your summary points. I'm referencing this. If you look at the last page of your handout there, um, you'll see a chart. Um, it's on the very back. I photocopied this from his book, and in it it has all of the psalms collected by genre. I wanted to give you a f- complete list of laments as we were studying them together, and so the the two left columns, the leftmost columns there, have all of the laments as um, identified by F. Dwayne Lindsay, who's an Old Testament scholar. So just thought that might be a helpful resource for you. Uh, So let me talk to you a little bit about the Psalms. The Psalms present us with a vision of God in the midst of our circumstances. And so when you are reading any Psalm, Mark, could you just do me a favor and turn down the knob behind you that says stage tracks? I don't want to like burn out my corneas in the next half hour. That'd be awesome. Ah, yes, that's so, that's perfect. Okay. Um, Wow, so I've got like the little glow lights. Okay. Um, The Psalms present us with a vision of God in the midst of our circumstances. And so as you're reading the Psalms, 
The Psalms aren't about you. As you're reading the Psalms, the Psalms aren't about you. As you're reading Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is not about you. As you're reading Kings, Kings is not about you. As you're reading Jonah, Jonah is not about you. The Old Testament, the Bible, is a book about God. And in the Old Testament, God is always the hero. In the Old Testament, especially when you're reading the Psalms, you want to figure out who God is in the passage. So when you're reading the Psalms, ask, what is the vision of God in the passage? That's your first blank on your handout. What is the vision of God in the passage? Or, simply, what is God like? In any psalm, not just laments, in any psalm, what is God's like? What is the vision of God? And because we can't necessarily separate God's character from his actions, we also want to ask, what are the deeds of God in the passage? What did God do? Uh, I, I, I prayed to the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me of all my fears. What did, the, what did God do? He delivered me. What did God do? He did something. So you always want to ask, what are the actions of God in the passage? And of course, what is the vision of God in the passage? Who is he? What is he doing? How does he interact with the person? The application is first found not in, this is my situation and how God responded. This is how God responded in light of my situation. Let's keep carts and horses in the right order. Um, that's just a little note about Psalms in general. Now I want to talk about laments in particular. Though scholars vary on precise numbering, it is safe to suggest that at least 60 of the Psalms are of lament, are lament in genre. Um, I want to give us a few principles to help study lament well, but before I do, I would like to read a little bit from an article by a man named Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann is the perhaps foremost Old Testament scholar in the country. Um, he is also, um, I would also put a, put a little footnote, I cite him throughout the, your handout, I would put a footnote of, read with discernment, were you to pick up anything. Uh, Walter Brueggemann is not only the, the foremost prime example of an Old Testament scholar, he's the probably the most well-known Old Testament scholar in North America. He's also the prime example of what we would call postmodern and pluralistic theology, and you'll hear that as I read you this little paragraph. This is from an article he wrote from, for the Living Pulpit, and the title of it is Lament is Antidote to Silence. And he says, The powerful characteristically silence the powerless. It happens everywhere. The rich silence the poor. Whites silence blacks. Men silence women. Teachers silence students. Straits silence gays. Whenever possible, hegemonic powers deny the existence, worth, or legitimacy of the other by denying voice. The community of ancient Israel understood that silence kills. It knew that it did not matter if the silence was imposed by their own god or Egyptian oppressors. Either way, silence made life unbearable. As a consequence, Israel devised an astonishing culture of lament, complaint, and protest, a culture that functions as a life-giving alternate to every hegemonic attempt to enforce silence. The book of Psalms, the ultimate hymnal of Jewishness, offers one-third of the entire collections as poems of lament and complaint. Uh, you'll notice, as I say, the pluralism evident in what he's saying as he talks about um, white silence blacks, men silence women, teachers silence students, straight silence gays. Um, he is 
in his pluralism, in his postmodernism, he is at least consistent. And so he offers equal voice to evangelicals and conservatives as well as he does liberals. We talk all the time in theology about feminist readings of the text, gay readings of the text, liberation readings of the text. And so he gives equal voice to all of these and talks about the silence imposed on people. As He says, the community of ancient Israel understood that silence kills. And out of this silence comes lament. And so a lament in part is... Uh, a response to silence. A, I am in this situation, and to not give it voice, um, to not give it voice would be a, a failure. Lament uh, cannot possibly handle the idea of not speaking. Walter Brueggemann, um, well, hang on, lament in particular, uh, keys to interpreting lament that we're going to tr- cover is, I want us to learn how to track the motion of the psalm. Note the emotions of the psalm, which came up as we were discussing a little earlier. I want us to learn how to identify the enemy character in the psalm. And then connect all of these with the vision of God in the passage. So that, those are some of the places we're going. As far as tracking the movement goes, Walter Brueggemann in his book, Praying the Psalms, says, I suggest in simple schematic fashion that our life of faith consists in moving with God in terms of being securely oriented, being painfully disoriented, and being surprisingly reoriented. So what he is suggesting is that all of the lament psalms move in this order. They move from... Their, their, they tend to move from orientation to disorientation to reorientation. Sometimes they start in a place of orientation and in a place of disorientation. They don't go anywhere else. Sometimes they start in disorientation and move to orientation or reorientation. Um, but what you need to know is that lament psalms take on certain patterns. And tracking this pattern reveals meaning. And on your handout, I have a couple types there. The, the three main types. The first one is kind of a diagonal motion downwards. And Psalm 88, which I think Jeff Kirshner is teaching on in about two weeks, is the perfect example of this. It kind of starts in an up high place, and as you read it, the motion goes down and down and down and down and down until it ends with, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Other translations say, darkness is my only friend. Sometimes I'm not sure if Psalm 88 was written by one of my emotional high schoolers or by David. Um, Psalms 88 and 39 are examples of these. Some of them move from a place of down to up. So Psalm 5 kind of is processing all of these things, and you sense a ladder motion coming out of the pit, if you will. And he says, you bless, at the end, he says, You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. Um, then the, another really common pattern would be a U-shape, which would be starting in a positive place, going down into a negative place, coming back up into a good place, kind of a valley motion. An interesting thing to note, and I, I note this on your handout, is that um, some scholars have studied the laments and have noted that there's not, the, 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 the Psalms, well, the, they've studied the whole book of Psalms, and they've noted that the book of Psalms is not helter-skelter organized. Um, that it wasn't just like as they wrote the Psalms, they got put in there, because actually like Psalm 90-something is written by Moses, so there's no chronological order, and some, um, some people have tried to indicate that the whole Psalter is actually one giant lament. Because as you read it, it does kind of start out in a high place. It kind of dips down in the middle a little bit, especially in the front, maybe 50. And then it starts to slowly kind of climb its way out until the end. You have like five solid, just very short, like, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, bless the Lord, praise the Lord, Psalms. And so how much validity is there to that? I don't know. I think it's really interesting that they would suggest that the whole book of Psalms 
has a U shape, a lament shape. So what you want to do when you're studying the Psalms is you want to note the shape of this. You want to, as you read, um, and I'm doing this all the time, and I'll show you in, when we combine it with this next point, I'm kind of trying to track the motion. But to help you do that, it's also helpful to note emotions. So I want us to read um, some of these verses together and talk about some of the emotions that are in there. So if I could have people ready to read each of these. Psalm 13, 1 through 2. Psalm 22, 6 through 7. Psalm 42, 5. Psalm 69, 15, Psalm 137, 1 through 4. We're going to read, we're going to cry out together as we read the scripture. And after every one, I want us to just, I have some blanks there. I want us to just maybe identify some of the emotions that become present. Sometimes they're going to be very much the same. Sometimes they're going to be different. So does anybody have um, 13, 1 and 2 ready? Could somebody read that for us loud and proud? Go for it. Any idea? Anybody want to name some emotions that rise out of that text to us? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me? How long? How long will my enemies exalt over me? Any emotions that you want to name that? Any emotion words we can apply that to? Fear. Excellent. Despair. Weariness. I think, I think there is a kind of exhaustion, isn't there? Like, oh, how long? Oh, how long? How about um, 22, 6, and 7? 22, 6, and 7. We're studying Psalm 22 next week. Ann Seiniger? Any idea of that? If any of you have children, think back to maybe when they were bullied in school, what would they say? Kind of a poor self-image, I think, too. There's a sense of, I would say, abandonment. I think Psalm 41 brought that up. A lot of people, um, Dave was reading, actually, Carl read Psalm 41, and he talks about, my friend has abandoned me, the man who ate bread at my table, and they actually, uh, scholars suggested that was between Jonathan and um, David. So I would say abandonment, poor self-image, this kind of overwhelming sense of aloneness. Uh, Psalm 42.5, preached on this passage this summer in a, in, a, in a sermon title, so you might be able to, this is, a, this is a freebie. Why am I so sad? Why am I so sad? Despair, I mean, utter despair, utter depression, sorrow. What's that? Wonderment. It's, um, Psalm 42 is very sad. 69.15, 69.15. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, fear of drowning. I think this fear of being like this overwhelmed, fear of death, this like over, this anxiety. I'll read um, 137, 4, 1 through 4. 137, 1 through 4. Beside the waters of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees, for our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. Watch how the way. Watch the way you read the text. They're not. I mean, this is kind of a na 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 na. This this psalm was written when um, they had been carried into exile in Babylon. So they're in Babylon, and he says they're, they're sitting beside the rivers of Babylon. The Babylonians. It was almost said Babylonites. Babylonians are saying, "Hey, why don't you sing us one of the songs of your homeland? Sing us one of the songs of your homeland." Kind of sticking out their tongue. But they say the psalmist says, "How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land?" And and, and I think there's a sense of um, I would say grief in the sense of a great loss. Um, as we study emotions, and what, what you want to do is you want to study emotions, and you also this will also help us track the movement. If you look in your handout, um, the next to last page actually has this chart on Psalm 13. I put it up here for you. Um, one way to track the Psalms is their, their movement and their emotions is to kind of create a a chart, which I recognize is actually on some level artificial, but you'll notice on the bottom axis of this, I have the verse numbers 1 through 6, 
And then on the up, the vertical axis of this, I have kind of just on the top positive emotion, joy, gladness, praise, thanksgiving. And on the bottom, I have negative emotion, fear, anger, isolation, mockery. And so you may remember when I preached the psalm, I, I talked about um, there's protest, petition, and promise. Um, and so as you see this, there's a, like kind of a diagonal movement upwards from a kind of negative emotion to a happier emotion as you move along this bottom axis towards the verses. So, as, so a helpful way to do this, is, and, I, and I do this when I study psalms, is I take out a piece of paper and I kind of just, as I'm reading the verses, draw lines. It was up and then it was down. Sometimes it's not a straight line. It just so happens that Psalm 13 lets me create a straight diagonal, diagonal line, which Microsoft Word just really likes. Um, you know, sometimes it is a roller coaster up and down. You feel like, oh, he's kind of in a good place. Up, but then he's sad again. Oh, he's kind of in a good place. He's getting there. Up, he's sad again. And you'll kind of watch over time. Maybe there is a, as it's roller coastering, it might be moving upward or downward or ewing a lot. So um, I think that's a helpful thing for those of us who are more visual. It's kind of nice to have, or, or those of us who like to do things as we study, it's helpful to have a pencil and a piece of paper in hand. I want to talk about the and the enemy, in so many psalms, there's, um, let not my, en- my, my enemies be exalted over me. Let not my enemies be exalted over me. Do not let my mockers win. And, the, and what you need to know is that the identity of the enemy is rather unimportant. There's so many psalms that speak of an enemy. And um, the identity of the enemy is unimportant. What is unimportant is that God is the victor in all circumstances. So whatever the identity of your enemy is... Uh, it, the, the really important part is that God is the victor. And so I would, I'm going to suggest to you um, that you really do have some freedom to kind of take the enemy and on some level see into it your, your circumstance. Um, illness seems like an enemy. Sometimes your enemy actually is a person, and sometimes that enemy is actually slandering you. And then it's like really close. Um, Walter Brueggemann, again, I'm just he has done fantastic work on lament, which is why I'm citing him so much put this together in, in his book, um, Praying the Psalms, and he kind of contrasts lament and praise psalms, and he says, and lament psalms, there are enemies who destroy. Who are they? All they are is they're seeking to destroy. could be sickness, it could be a friend, it could be your depression, it could be all of these number of things. But in praise psalms, the focus isn't so much on enemies who destroy, but it's on a, on a king who governs and orders. Um, in lament psalms, he just says they're being trampled, they're passive, they're attacked, they're mocked. Everything in a lament psalm, the, the subject, the person saying it, is often very passive. I am mocked, I am trampled, I am hurting, I am underfoot, I am voiceless. In praise psalms, he uses the word clapping. There's an active action. I am praising the Lord. I am singing to the Lord. I am clapping my hands. I am playing an instrument. In Lament Psalms, the, the dominant metaphor is tears. I was on my bed and I was weeping. My tears have been my food all the day long. In praise, there's a table, and this immediately kind of thinks of Psalm 23, that he lays out a table before my enemies. Um, so Lament, there, and, and in this chart, what he's kind of just trying to say, look, these are, there's these overarching principles to, and, and themes to this. But we, there's an honest element of, for lack of a better word, freedom of interpretation of how you want to see the enemy, which is not to say that, like, uh, I had a professor whose wife was... Um, uh, battling cancer, and the verse that they kept reflecting on was, I think, I can't remember, I want to say Psalm 45, which I feel like might be a total artificial number in my head, but the verse is, we will not trust in chariots or in men, but we will, tr- we will not trust in horses or in chariots, we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And he saw chariots as surgeons and sonograms and metal equipment. We're not going to trust in chariots and horses, we're going to trust in the name of the Lord our God. There's some kind of level of freedom in applying poetry to 
our circumstances, which probably makes us really uncomfortable. And this is where we have to say, like, there's flexibility to the text, but not, I'm going to ram it through whatever situation I want it to be in. Um, which is why there's diversity in genre in the Psalms. So, lastly, I just want to talk a couple, two more things, and this is kind of broadening out from, those are how to study the Psalms. I want to talk a little bit about just lament and the Christian. And I, and I said this when I preached this, but lament, um, the Psalms, when memorized, really provide a grammar and language for prayer. Um, they, when you memorize the Psalms, when you just read the Psalms a lot, suddenly you find yourself, your imagination is shaped, and your language is shaped by the text. And suddenly you find yourself lamenting kind of like the psalmist laments. Even your, maybe your thoughts, maybe you never voice it, but your thoughts start to kind of take on the shape, and you do start to say, you st- your heart starts to whisper, how long, O Lord? And um, if you have a study Bible, I would encourage you, I have this on here, to check out Jonah's prayer from the innards of the great fish, which is just like a psalm. Um, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called Under the Unpredictable Plant, an Exploration in Vocational Holiness, and it's, 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 a, sto- it's a study in the life of, of Jonah. And he writes this, So Jonah prayed, talking about when Jonah's in the belly of the whale. That, that Jonah prayed, I think I have this on here, that Jonah prayed is not remarkable. We commonly pray when we are in desperate circumstances. But there is something very remarkable about the way Jonah prayed. He prayed a set prayer. Jonah's prayer is not spontaneously original self-expression. It is totally derivative. Jonah had been taught, had been to school to learn how to pray, and he prayed as he had been taught. His school was the Psalms. And if you have a good study Bible, you'll suddenly find, basically, I mean, he is just quoting from here and here, 18, 45, 18, 18, just verses all together make up that prayer of Jonah. And uh, I want to read to you Jeremiah 20, verses 7 through 18. Um, I once did a first-person narrative on this when I was in England, and the story is that um, Jeremiah was prophesying in in the temple and is so arrested, and um, Jeremiah is actually thrown in the stocks right outside the temple gate, so as people are going to worship Yahweh in in this way that is not at all pleasing to him, um, Jonah is stuck in stocks just watching these people go by on their false idolatry. And he gets out and, and starts, and he kind of prophesies against Pasher, and so some really intense thing. And then Jeremiah, it says, Jeremiah's complaint. He says, O oh Lord, you misled me, and I allowed myself to be misled. You are stronger than I am, and you have overpowered me. Now I am mocked every day. Everyone laughs at me. When I speak, the words burst out. Violence and destruction I shout. So these messages from the Lord have made me a household joke. But if I say I'll never mention the, I'll mention in the I will never mention the Lord or speak in his name. His word burns in my heart like a fire. It's like a fire in my bones. I am worn out trying to hold it in. I can't do it. I have heard the many rumors about me. They call me the man who lives in terror. They threaten, if you say anything, we will report it. Even my old friends are watching me, waiting for a fatal slip. He will trap himself, they will say, and then we will get our revenge on him. But the Lord stands beside me like a great warrior. 
Before him my persecutors will stumble. They cannot defeat me. They will fall and be thoroughly humiliated. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of heaven's armies, you test those who are righteous and you examine the deepest thoughts and secrets. Let me see your vengeance against them, for I have committed my cause to you. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. For though I was poor and needy, he rescued me from my oppressors. Oh, bless his heart. He's so much better. Verse 14. Yet I curse the day I was born. May no one celebrate the day of my birth. I curse the messenger who told my father, Good news, you have a son. Let him be destroyed like the cities of old that the Lord overthrew without mercy. Terrify him all day long with battle shouts because he did not kill me at birth. Oh, that I had died in my mother's womb, that her body had been my grave. Why was I ever born? My entire life has been filled with trouble, sorrow, and shame. A side note would be that we often say, verse Jeremiah 20, verse 9, you know, I say, I'll never mention the Lord or speak in his name, but his word burns in my heart like a fire, and that's why I've got to preach the gospel all the time. And actually, Jonah, and actually Jeremiah is saying, you have created me in such a way that if I refuse to preach, I am actually in physical pain. So I am forced to continue on this path that is downward. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. And you see, actually, I should have probably added, I guess, in light of this, a fourth movement, because it is kind of an upward, a downward, upward, downward movement. Um, and, what, and as you read that, I mean, all I can think is that is a lament psalm that he just prays. And his imagination is somehow shaped. And, and so, as we read laments, as we study these, these give us the grammar to, and the language and the vocabulary to learn how to pray. So my hope would be, if it, and I would say, if you walk out of this series on Psalms and you haven't learned how to pray better, then this was all for naught. This should, this, I, my hope is that this series, as we, as we talk about them, I hope it yeah, helps you study them. I hope yeah, it, it helps you understand them. But I really hope it teaches you how to pray. Um, and then, uh, kind of in closing here, and we're going to be doing a little more sword drills, I want to talk about lament and the problem of evil. The biggest objection you may hear from people as you're sharing your faith with them is, well, how could a good and loving God allow evil to exist? How could a good and all-powerful God allow, allow evil to exist in the world? Philosophers call this the theodicy. It is the question that plagues us. And actually, the psalmists seek to answer that question. But in doing so, they change the way the question works in our mind. So that Psalm 13, 1 and 2 we know this, it begins with the words, how long? If somebody could read 88, 14, maybe 102, 1 through 2, and 109, 26. See, we ask the question, how could a good and loving God allow evil to exist? And the psalmist actually kind of tells us, no, that's the wrong question. You're, you're asking the wrong question. They ask, they ask this question in the words, how long? Can somebody read 88, 14? Psalm 88, 14. Why is another way they ask that question. How could a good and loving God allow evil to exist? Psh, the real question is why. Why do you hide your face from me? How about um, 102, 1 through 2? 102, 1 through 2. Yeah. Incline your ear to me. Translated into four-year-old, that's daddy, 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 daddy. Hey, daddy, 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 daddy. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Listen, answer, Psalm 102. What about 109, 26? 109, 26. 109. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Save me, he says, save me because of your unfailing love. I'm going to use bad English to translate this. Be who you is. <laughs> Be who you is. The answer to the question for the psalmist is essentially, this is your next blank, 
I am who I am. Exodus 3.14. Yahweh. I am who I am. The answer to our problem is found in reliance on God's character. How does a good God allow suffering and evil? I don't know, but He's good. How does a good God allow suffering and evil? He has unfailing love. How does a good God... They're not answering, they're not asking this question. This is this, the problem of evil, I have in quotes. The psalmists, do not, the psalmists absolutely engage in this question, but they ask it far simpler. And this is actually the cry of our hearts. The cry of our heart is, hmm, how can a good God allow evil and suffering in this world? The cry of our hearts is, why? How long? Listen to me. Be who you said you are. That's the cry of our hearts, unless you're like, got your three, you have three PhDs in philosophy. Then maybe the cry of your heart actually is, how could a good and loving God allow evil to exist? And the answer to the problem is reliance on God's character. And that's, this is what brings us actually back to the idea of the vision of God in the passage. Because the answer for the psalmist is not found in philosophical understandings of causality. It is not found in anything but who God is, which is why, and this is why I brought us, I'm going to bring us back to Psalm 13. You know, he says, how long will you forget me? And he ends, but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. Unfailing love, rescue, goodness. Um, and this is where the psalmist actually shapes our answer to this question. If our answer to that question does not how somehow reflect on the goodness, the character of God, then we're missing the point. And the laments instruct us, <coughs> excuse me, the laments instruct us that in whatever our need is, the answer in part might not come in uh, uh, a direct answer to prayer as much as it is resting in the character of God. And uh, I would add, Mark pointed this out, talking about the journey versus the destination. The Psalms represent a journey, not a destination. And so, um, you know, on one hand, we do have verses. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me of all my fears. Nine times out of ten, when I seek the Lord and he answers me, I'm not immediately delivered from all of my fears. <laughs> I don't just magically feel better. My emotions do not work inside of me like a light switch. They work like a dimmer switch. So sometimes the lights are real bright and sometimes the lights are real dim. And sometimes prayer is this slow turning of the knob that makes us less anxious, that makes us less worried, that helps us to see our circumstances in a better light. Uh, and this is where um, the Psalms on some level do kind of um, nod at the cliche, you know, do not tell God how big your storm is, but tell your storm how big your God is kind of a thing. Um, and that's, that's what's really going on in the Psalms. So before we um, go into Q&A here, I just want to let you know that over the next few weeks, um, what we're going to be doing in the lament track um, is that we'll each, I, I would encourage us all to think this week and maybe write your own lament to share with the class. And they could be written about any situation that you experience. You're, you are experienced. You are experiencing. I did go to college. Um, and they can be read anonymously or by the author. So you can choose to write a lament and have it read anonymously about whatever situation you're in. And so um, that will be happening over the next two weeks. So hopefully maybe at least one or two of you will bring a lament um, and maybe um, you can, I don't remember how we said we were going to organize that, Mark. Were they going to be emailed to me? Yeah. You can email them to me, and if you, so you can either write down my email now, or you can actually find it on Village Church's website under the Student Ministries tab, like my email's on there. Please don't send me your spam. Um, 
So if you write them, and then the, the uh, next week I'm actually teaching, so next week at least I'll write my own lament and bring it. So, um, And then as far as, let me just say, I want to get into this going deeper because it's not even 10 yet, so I'm going to get all this in. Some books, Walter Brueggemann, Prayers for a Privileged People, which I'm going to close our time with in a few minutes by reading from it. This is He writes prayers. Um, this Walter Brueggemann, in his liberal understanding of the Bible and of theology will push your boundaries as to what you think, how liberal a person can be and still be a Christian and have a relationship with Jesus. Because as, as I've read these, and he, this is a book called Prayers for a Privileged People. He has another one, Odd to Heaven, Rooted to Earth. Um, you know, you, you have to go, this man's life of prayer indicates there's something going on between him and Jesus in some ways that I don't have. So while I would never have him teach me about the authority of the Bible, I would sit under this man for hours if he was going to teach me how to pray. Um, he's written um, a book called Praying the Psalms, which is a short little book that I actually read in about an hour to help prepare for this. Eugene Peterson's Answering God, The Psalms as Tools for Prayer. Michael read that a lot this summer and prepped for the psalm series and said it was very, very helpful. And then Walt Russell's book, Playing with Fire, How the Bible Ignites Change in Your Soul, which I referenced at the beginning. If you're just looking for a book, you say, I don't really know how to study the Bible, I want to read it. This book, oh, it is so helpful. His chapters on the Gospels is so good. His chapter on the book of Acts is so good. The epistle, I mean, every chapter is just so, so helpful. So I would really, really highly recommend this book. Some people also really like Gordon Fee's book, which is, I think, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Um, I've, I have not read that. I've read this. I just absolutely love it. It's published by Nav Press. It's not Moody Press. It's not the name you can trust, but it's close. So, um, yeah, any questions before we close our time out? It's only... 10 o'clock. This might be a new record for the equip hour. Uh, Mark. Yeah. 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 I know who God is. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, and I wish that we could somehow tattoo that on the inside of our eyelids so that every time a moment like that happens, which is about every other day, we could just go, hang on. Yes, 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 yes. And we're good. Okay. You know, and um, and then, but the problem is, is um, this is a thing where one of my professors always used to talk about, like trusting the Lord is like, okay, Lord, I'm going to leave that there, and you can work on it. Okay, I want that back. I'm going to leave that there for you to work on that. I'm going to leave it on the table. I'm going to hold on to this for the next ten minutes. Okay, I'm going to leave this there. You know, and so sometimes it's like I put it there, and I go on a drive, and I'm okay, and then I relapse, you know, and I get rid of it for a day, and then I relapse, and I hold on to it for a week, and then I put it down. So absolutely helpful. Any other questions, thoughts? I think that, um, yes, they are. It will be next week. We're going to talk about, uh, for those of you who couldn't hear that on the recording, um, John just pointed out that some of them are messianic, and they are. Um, Psalm 22, which we're studying next week, is especially considered messianic because Christ actually declares those words. Uh, yeah. And just one yeah. Now, yes. Himself, right. Um, you know, I think, and I, you don't, don't ever please don't hear this as gospel truth, but this is something I've heard through the grapevine, that the word worm in that is a worm that latches itself onto a tree and is red, and when it dies, it leaves a white spot on the tree. So, I don't know. Ooh. Yeah. So, absolutely, I think the messianic nature of the Psalms, interestingly, the New Testament quotes the Psalms more than any other book. I think Deuteronomy is next. Um, so, which is really, really interesting. So we'll talk a lot. Thanks for bringing that up. I'm really excited to explore how do we read the Old Testament this way. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. Does it really? Look at the how helpful this is. <laughs> you know, I kind of saw this, and I was just like, "Oh, there's a list of the Psalms," and I thought, "I'm gonna." I, this is. The, can I be honest with you? you? Know how this ended up on this? I was like, "I really don't want to type all those." So, 
there you go. Um, yeah, Dave. Mm-hmm. Wow, powerful. Absolutely. You know, I think in, in along those lines, sometimes praying the Psalms is as easy as um, God is Kyle's refuge and strength, always ready to help him in times of trouble. So Kyle will not fear when earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. I mean, just actually inserting your name may help. Um, any other questions? I'm, if not, I'm going to like go with this record of being early and close this in prayer. Because <laughs> it's just awesome. So let me pray. Um, this is a prayer by Walter Brueggemann called A Prayer of Protest. Since our mothers and fathers cried out, since you heard their cries and noticed, since we left the brick production of Egypt, since you foiled the production schedules of Pharaoh, we have known your name, we have sensed your passion, we have treasured your vision of justice. And now we turn to you again, whose precious name we know. We turn to you because there are still impossible production schedules, still exploitative systems, still cries of pain at injustice, still cheap labor that yields misery. We turn to you in impatience and exasperation, wondering how long before you answer our pleading question. Hear our petition, since you are not a labor boss and do not set wages. We bid you stir up those who can change things. Do your stirring in the jaded halls of government. Do your stirring in the cynical offices of the corporations. Do your stirring amid the voting public too anxious to care. Do your stirring in the church that thinks too much about purity and not enough about wages. Move as you moved in ancient Egyptian days. Move the waters and the flocks and the herds toward new statutes and regulations, new equity and good health care, new dignity that cannot be given on the cheap. We have known now, long since, that you reject cheap grace, even as we now know that you reject cheap labor. You, God of justice and dignity and equity, keep the promises that you bodied in Jesus, that the poor may be first-class members of society, that the needy may have good care and respect, that the poor earth may rejoice in well-being, that we may all come to Sabbath rest together, the owner and the worker, the leisure class and the labor class, all at peace and dignity and justice, not on the cheap, but good measure, pressed down, running over, forgiven. Amen. Just uh, as you go about this week, pray a lament psalm, spend some time in them, use this chart. This is That, by the way, was a great example of connecting lament language to modern-day circumstance if there ever was one. So um, enjoy your week. You're loved. God bless you.